Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reformed, Puritan literature, reading especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, g'day and welcome to another Reformers Bookcast, uh, my a podcast put on by Reformers Bookshop. My name is Tom Eglinton, the manager here at Reformers, and today we have a guest uh, dialing in, Leyland Riken. Thanks for joining us, Leyland. Glad to be here. Uh, where, do you, where do you hail from? Where are you calling in from? I am from very humble origins. Right to the present day, I self-identify as the farm <laughs> boy from Iowa. Only in recent years has it occurred to me. I grew up in an immigrant subculture. That subculture was Dutch Reformed and rural. Neither of my parents finished grade school because they were needed to work on the farm. Now, as I've been on the interview circuit in connection with this new release, Recovering the Lost Art of Reading, the question comes up, when did you become a reader? And I think the answer is I became a reader on winter nights in our Iowa farmhouse. I can recall that uh, we went weekly for our music lesson and then automatically we went for an hour to the local public library. There was no television, of course. Just uh, fast forward, I've taught for 52 years in the English department at Wheaton College and I have published 60 books. 60, wow, I didn't know it was that many. I did not know how it happened. It just kind of happens. <laughs> there is a Dutch ethic at work, you understand. And uh, what, what is, what's your interest? Uh, what's, what are the main um, topics of your books? They are all over the board. I am best known in the world at large for the Bible as literature. And I often say that's half of my career. I have written on work and leisure, the Puritans, many a topic. Um, I have uh, entered every open door that was put before me by a publisher, and it has really been an interesting life. Ah, that's great to hear. Um, and as you mentioned, your new book that has just come out from Crossway is uh, Recovering the Lost Art of Reading. Uh, and can you, can you tell us a bit about what prompted this book? It occurred when a person from my hometown of Pella, Iowa, a freelance writer, was without a book project just when I was. So we agreed we would collaborate. My co-author is not an academician. She pushed hard for what I would regard as an academic book, literature and Christian perspective. Mm. To my amazement, the book was accepted. And the interest in it, even before the launch, has been major. So it was providential that my co-author held out for the book she wanted. That's great. Well, so you say she wanted an academic level book because uh, reading it, it's it, it's very popular level. I feel like a lot of people could approach it and get a lot out Absolutely. of it. The subject is academic. Um, my co-author had brought to the table the popular touch. Right. And yes, it is an entirely readable book. On the other hand, the topic literature and Christian perspective, because that is the category, is not exactly on the lips of the person on the street. So in that sense, an academic topic, I would say. You're right. The treatment is entirely accessible. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the, the title, again, is Recovering the Lost Art of Reading, uh, which presupposes that reading is a lost art. Why do, why do you think that is? 
Let, let me first just talk about the topic. It is a lost art, but in multiple ways. My co-author gives the statistics. Let me give the anecdotal data. When I teach Homer's Odyssey, I assign a paper on storytelling technique in Homer's Odyssey. That's my students' opportunity to show they know what uh, a story is like. And then in the instructions, I encourage my students, if you can recall moments from your childhood that would add a personal touch, put that in. Mm. Well, during the first half of my career, I got really endearing anecdotes about being read to, curling up with a book, reading by a flashlight after the lights were turned off. Then, 20 years ago, those anecdotes absolutely dried up. Well, a little reflection will tell us why. Children no longer read. And I just want to tell your audience, parental example makes all the difference. And without it, a child is very unlikely to become a reader. Now, I found interesting that my co-author gave evidence that from one point of view, there's all kinds of reading going on, yes, mm. but it is ephemeral, digitized reading. Reading in the traditional sense became a permanent possession. Half of the great books I have read, I have always remembered. I have returned to them. What we read on the moving screen is not a permanent possession. Reading in the traditional sense and what, what my co-author taught me to call deep reading is indeed a lost art. So deep, deep reading being taking a physical book and and engaging with a lengthy story um, instead of just a, a light blog post about something that happened yesterday. Yes, and um, I do want I do have primarily in mind imaginative literature, and we do in our book. But I just want to put on the table what we're covering in our book and in this interview does extend to other kinds of reading also. I remember with fondness when my wife gave me a copy of Jonathan Edwards' Charity and Its Fruits for Christmas. Mm. That's not literary writing. That is expository. I nonetheless experienced it with that sense of transport that is a leading ingredient of reading. It was akin in every way to sitting down and reading Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Yeah, so let's, uh, can you define those terms for us? You said that one was expository and one was one's, uh, imaginative literature. So h- how do you define literature and um, can, you, can you build those categories out for us? In fact, I begin my, uh, all my courses with a theory lecture, as I call it, and one of the things I do is differentiate between utilitarian or expository writing informational writing. That's what we are taught to do in writing courses. That's most of the use of language that we use in daily living. A theology book would be expository, explanatory writing. Literary writing takes human experience as its subject. It elevates form to a position of importance. It's an art form. It puts us in contact with human experience as we live it. We vicariously live human experience. It appeals in that sense to our imagination, to our image making and image perceiving capacity. But a book of ideas doesn't do that. It, it appeals to our minds. Okay. So then like my, uh, most of the books that, um, that get published through sort of Christian publishing houses are um, expository. That they're, they're telling us how to live or giving us theology ideas. Um, and and I, I think they're great great books to read, and I'm sure you agree. 
But what what is it about literature itself then? The imaginative literature, storytelling, poems, um, narratives. What what is it about those books that are so uh, enriching for the Christian life? The first thing they provide is transport. C.S. Lewis says regarding a, a reading experience, and he has literary reading in mind, is the feeling I have got out out of the ordinary world of lived experience. We've drawn a boundary around the anxieties and preoccupations of life. We've set space aside. That's one of the things. Uh, It's a form of entertainment, and particularly narrative as opposed to poetry. Uh, We need recreation in our lives. For half a century, I have been an exponent of enlightened leisure as a Christian calling. God expects it of us. Well, literature provides it. Then we have this, there is an edifying aspect to literature, in a sense, an instructional aspect. But let's take the story of Cain. It show. oh, here's the deal. In literature courses, we, we say the writer's task is to show rather than tell. To tell means to explain abstractly. So we have the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That's telling. The story of Cain shows us that we are not to murder. It doesn't use the abstraction murder. It doesn't tell us to avoid it. It shows us. We reenact the experience. And that's where literature's edification comes in. Reliving the text is itself part of the edification that a literary book offers us. That's great. So what you're you're saying then too, and you mentioned that you've written on this previously, is that the Bible itself contains multiple different types of literary form, which most of us would be uh, aware of. But um, but you're saying that, there, that there's narrative and, and poetry that actually transports us out of our own um, ex- experience to, to something transcendent. May I, may I quote a, a scholar, a biblical scholar, talking about the parables? He says regarding the parables, and I say regarding literature, it is not a delivery system for an idea. He, claim, he gives us the picture of it's a house that we are invited to enter. Mm. My preferred image is it's a whole world that we enter. And then when we reside there, we look out of it as through a window to real life. So we first look at the work of art, then through it to life. That's great. Uh, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, now... Uh, one of the other topics that you've written on uh, recently, actually, you've just published a, a couple of books on favorite hymns. Uh, so you've got 40 favorite hymns for the Christian life and 40 favorite hymns from the Christ- for the Christian year, where you are, uh, well, why don't you tell us what, what you do in these books? I'm glad to say I landed a contract for a third one. I'm really fond okay. of these. They were so enjoyable. The idea is that every hymn begins its life as a poem. It becomes a hymn only when it is matched to music. It has all the qualities of a devotional poem. It asks and invites us to experience it as a devotional poem. Now, in my two books, I print the hymns as poems, and then I provide a 500-word explication. Incidentally, a predecessor of that was a book, The Soul in Paraphrase, a, mm-hmm. an anthology of devotional poems by the, the great authors, again, accompanied by an explication. Um, what is lost if we don't treat them as poems? Well, a great deal 
When we sang a, a hymn, we're just hurried along. I would compare singing a hymn only to going to see a Shakespearean play. I teach Shakespeare's plays in the classroom as literature. Mm. I teach the verbal beauty, the nuances of characterization. It's just amazing what is there. How much of that is available to me when I see a performance of a Shakespearean play? For me, the answer is no more than 20%. Mm. That's pretty thin. Does that mean I don't enjoy seeing a Shakespeare play? No, I love it. Similarly with a hymn. When we analyze it, as I do in my book, and see what's really there, how much of that do we experience when we sing the hymn? Not very much. That's not a put down of singing hymns. It's just a, a, a way of saying we need to do more than sing the hymns. We have to see what's really there. Yeah, and, and as you describe it in that way, what you what you sort of see is that the hymns are really... Uh, um, Christian men throughout ages seeking to do what the psalmist did and describe Good. their experience in, in poetic means to convey something about the Christian the psalms, life. The psalms are as dense with poetic texture as any poems that I teach in, in, the, uh, in my literature courses. The hymns represent, if I may use a formula by an authority on hymns, um, the, the uh, imagination under vows of renunciation. That is, they have to be accessible and simple enough that we indeed can sing them. So they're not as complex as Milton's sonnets. I'm not making that claim. But they have the same kind of poetic technique, mm. just a little less densely than a poem by Wordsworth. That's great. So, uh, yeah, I hope uh, that they are helpful. Those books are helpful for people to dig into those hymns um, more deeply. Uh, and sort of stepping back to where we were coming from before, uh, that we we should have an experience that's um, of of reading that's broader than just factual reading. Um, we've touched on on hymns and how they are um, poetic works that we can dig into. How how can we engage with secular you know literature that that's not aligned necessarily with the Christian worldview? Let me phrase it in terms that people often do. Why should I read secular literature, and why shouldn't I read only Christian literature? Mm. Well, to such a person, I want to say, you need to dust off your copy of Calvin's Institutes, and you need to go to Book 2, Chapter 2, where Calvin discusses common grace. And he says such things as, whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers— let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. And that's only the beginning. Calvin is rapturous about how non-Christian writers, even calls them wicked men, have indeed enshrined the true, the good, and the beautiful in their writing, literary and non-literary. Having uh, mentioned that triad, the true, the good, and the beautiful, I was so pleased in our book, Recovering the Lost Art of Reading, how naturally that triad became an organizing principle. It's really a great one. In so, literature, we encountered the true, the good, and the beautiful. So w w that, that's a, a phrase that's not often heard around these days, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful. What, what's that all about? The, the uh, formula comes apparently from Plato. Nonetheless, 
let's take uh, Paul's in, in joining us to think about what is true, what is good, what is lovely. If you look at that passage in Philippians, it's um, you can see the, the uh, trinity of concepts, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Now, regarding literature, I want to say, it does not primarily give us ideational truth. It gives us truthfulness to life. That's a, that's a category of truth that I'm afraid to say most Christians don't have on their radar screen. Well, that's what the arts, including the, uh, visual art, painting, and music also specialize in. That's what they're best at, truthfulness it, to life. What, what does that mean? Uh, what it means is that the writer holds the mirror up to life, to use Shakespeare's phrase, images forth reality, as Dorothy Sayers puts it, shows rather than tells, so that we vicariously live, well, let's take the story of Cain, the downward spiral into sin. We experience it. Um, the edification is in reliving the story, showing the truth. So, so what's an example then of how that works itself out in, in your reading of, um, I guess, non-Christian literature? How, where well, are some examples of how you've seen these things brought out? Excellent. It comes out in all the literature that I teach. Let's take Homer's Odyssey as an example. I love the Odyssey. Well, Homer was a pagan living before Christ. Truthfulness to human experience at many levels. The difficulty of attaining virtue, life as a journey, the importance of home. But but we we, we live those experiences. Mm. It's truthful truthful to life. We uh, let me put it this way: the writer gets us to stare at human experience by putting it in front of us. And I want to say writers as a group are, in fact, skilled at presenting human experience, observing life. And it makes, frankly, no difference whether they are Christian or not. They're, that's their skill, observing life. Okay, they enshrine this. They hold it before us. As we are lured into staring at life, to use the formula of a literary critic, we come to see it clearly, so that mm. truthfulness to life means knowledge in the form of right seeing. We see the nature of devotion to home when Odysseus survives on a 10-year trip to get home, the, the, the loyalty to home. We, we are led to see it. Um, so the truthfulness to life is there. Now, the great books also enshrine ideas, and I don't scorn those. It's not, however, what literature is best at. It's best at embodying human experience. And, but then there's a whole further dimension, the beautiful. Uh, literature is an art form. The, the skill of the technique is, is just it's self-rewarding, but that's equally true of the Bible as literature. The technique matters. You know, the, the skill of the writers is there for us to admire and to celebrate. Yeah, there is so, there's something so, nice about a well-formed sentence, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, when you when you get that line at the end of the paragraph that just perfectly sums it up and drives it home, it's a nice thing. Yep. Um, now, you you're a, a teacher. You've um writ you've written sixty books. You seem like a relatively busy person. How do you fit reading into your life? I think that's that's probably one of the biggest problems we have, or at least we think we have. Um, yes, so glad we're covering that. It begins with commitment. One has to commit to reading. Mm. It doesn't have to be a big time commitment. 20 minutes a day is an entirely respectable way to achieve a reading life Is that if that is all we have. The important thing is to 
draw a boundary around the duties of life. That is, we have to be transported. It is so important. Once we do that, we have to be convinced that this is legitimate. The book, Recovering the Lost Art of Reading, is definitely a, a how-to-do-it book. You know, for all the genres, we talk about how to read these genres, but it is also an apologetic book. We make the case for the importance of reading in a Christian's life. We have to begin with that apologetic foundation. We have to be convinced in our minds that enlightened leisure is something God expects of us and that reading is enriching. Once we are certain of that and are ready to set the time aside, we have to set the time aside free from guilt. In my excursions through leisure theory, I encountered a book entitled by an evangelical, When I Relax, I Feel Guilty. Hmm. Yes, that's the problem in a nutshell. So, really, though, chip- I feel like I feel like Christians probably spend a lot of time watching Netflix and, <laughs> and relaxing yep. in other ways, right? That's true. That, that's a whole different problem. The inferior nature of our uh, leisure experiences. But again, we need to dignify the idea of leisure yeah. as it deserves. We have to look at the biblical data that shows God does expect us to take time out. Well, then, if it's that important then let's fill our leisure time with enriching mm. forms of leisure. Yeah, that's great. Um, I guess things like, um, well, you're, you'd have, so you're, you're talking leisure in terms of small scale as well as, as, well as larger scale, right? So you're I saying, you're saying se- separate out 20 minutes a day, but also, yeah. you know, take a book on a holiday. Oh, amen, amen. If we can find more than 20 minutes, that's super, but... I just want to encourage your viewers that a modest uh, setting aside of time is entirely legitimate. And that does 20 minutes a day for five days. That yields what I'm calling this drawing a boundary around the utilitarian demands of life. Mm. That's important. 20 minutes, 20 minutes are respectable. That's great. And, and most of us can find 20 minutes after dinner sometime or on the train into work, you know, there's, there's, there's spaces in our days that we can use for these sorts of activities. Amen. Uh, now, because reading is a lost art, I, I mean, I, I started reading more heavily about three years ago and I found that it was, it was a challenge. I had to, I had to work at it. Uh, what are some tips that you have for uh, getting the most out of a book or, or just reading in general? Choose a, a book, I would say, let's say, uh, let's start with a novel that's accessible. Don't choose one. That, don't begin with Paradise Lost and Epic. Begin with, for example, Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Its style is as readable as that of the Bible. It is a simple style on the surface. It is such a Christian classic. Start commensurate with your abilities. But don't be content with just the easy. That would then that's as, that's no better than Netflix. I would say um, I would keep my antennae up for book suggestions. Uh, they're they're floating around. Someone at church might know a high school teacher of English. Uh, pay attention to uh, book uh, recommendations in Christian magazines on a podcast and so forth. You will encounter the right books if you just get into it. That's true of any field of life. You, you will gradually develop the expertise, the capacity 
getting back to uh, our the lost art of reading, if we don't read, we lose the ability to do it. And that is definitely being shown now in surveys. The mind is adapting to the smartphone. And some of the people that my co-author cites in the book acknowledge that they found that they just couldn't concentrate on mm -hmm. ordinary reading anymore. They were just, all they could, could absorb were text messages. Um, so we have to develop the capacity, the ability and the capacity and the desire but that's true of reading the Bible. That's true of Christian virtue. We have to habituate ourselves to it. Well, that, that's very helpful. And, and thank you, uh, Leyland, for your time and for walking us through this. And thanks for writing the book, Recovering the Lost Art of Reading. I hope it's helpful for people. Thank you for the interview. And you've been listening to the Reformers Bookcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next time.